Welcome to the Global Payroll Association's podcast in partnership with ADP, Women in Payroll. My name is Melanie Pitsy and I'm the CEO of the Global Payroll Association. I'm so excited to run this series of podcasts to give me the opportunity to introduce to you some of the inspirational female leaders that I've met over the last 20 years within the payroll community. My co-host today is Graham Wiley, who is the Vice President Marketing International of ADP. During our podcast, we will be discussing the highs and lows of individuals' careers and find out how they have got to where they are today. So, as they say, let's get on with the show. Hi, Mel. Hi, Graham. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Looking forward to today's conversation with Kate Upcraft. Very excited. A lot of people know Kate, so hopefully they'll find out a little bit more about her today. Hi, Kate. Hello, Mel and Graham. So, Graham, I don't know if you know me and uh, Kate worked with each other about 15 years ago, a long time ago. <laughs> I've been LinkedIn stalking Kate in advance of this meeting in a very impressive background. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kate, so, maybe uh, we could uh, start with just a little bit of that history in terms of how you got into payroll and what you're doing now. Okay, well, I got into payroll like lots of people because I stupidly didn't understand what I was getting into at all. I was an HR manager at Marks & Spencer um, running a store who um, sent off timesheets every weekend and then magically a little bundle of six or 700 payslips came back, which I dished out and uh, had moved into head office, saw a job come up as one of the payroll management team because the team was being expanded and thought, well, that must be easy because like everybody else in HR, I'm afraid, I assumed there was just a button somewhere that people pressed in London. I walked into a team of 40 people managing 100,000 people, including pensioners and 20,000 temporary staff every Christmas. So uh, a little bit different than I had imagined as an HR manager, but I loved it from, um, from week one because we actually had a purpose. There was a beginning and a middle and an end to what we did. And so a huge sense of job satisfaction. Not that anybody ever thanked us, clearly, for paying them correctly. But uh, the minute it was 10p less than the month before, as you can imagine, that the phones would be red hot. Um, but it was a, a very um, focused, interesting and detailed team to be in. Um, one day, m decided to tell the press before they told us, that was the HR director, telling the press we were going to be relocated to Manchester to set up a shared service centre and that all of us were going to move. And in fact, none of us moved because we were all mums living and working in London. Um, so we trained the team up in Manchester and most of my team were made redundant. Sadly, I didn't get redundancy because things uh, changed in terms of what I was promised. So I left the business after 20 odd years and uh, became head of policy for what was then the IPPM and before it became its uh, current incarnation of the CIPP. Um, And when I left there, it was to go into business on my own as a payroll consultant, and that's what I am now. So as well as um, being an employment tax and payroll lecturer and writer, I'm also vice chair of the Employment Tax Committee at ICAW, and I'm a committee member at the British Computer Society Payroll Specialist Group. That's me. As I said, an impressive track record. Um, and so you're based in the UK. Are you exclusively focused on the UK or do you Absolutely. look at... Absolutely. No, the UK isn't the UK anyway, as everybody knows. It's four countries and that's enough for me in terms of uh, four countries to manage. Uh, um, after you know, 40 years in the in the payroll domain, there's more than enough that I don't know about those four countries. So uh, I'm certainly not, uh, wouldn't profess at all to be anything global whatsoever. I'm very happy just to focus on those four countries and their complexities. 
And you say with the, the four countries, has, when, when did that really start changing or has it always been it's been like that for a long time um but um predominantly it had been in the case of things that were slightly tangential to us like higher education in terms of all the student loan differences and huge differences in employment law particularly in northern ireland but since 2016 things have moved on rapidly because now of course scotland has devolved responsibility for tax matters and since april of this year wales has responsibility for tax matters as well so as long as uh, alongside justice which has always been devolved higher education employment law and tax you can see everything is very very different depending on where your employees are based not where your particular business head office is based and in respect to student loans actually what uh, you have to ask is where people have lived over the last 20 or 30 years in order to make the right decision so it's a very complicated picture for employers now in the UK. And so can you tell us a little bit more about your your role today? I mean, you're obviously focused on those four different countries, the complexity of those four different countries, but how are you helping companies navigate that complexity and working as, as your own business and your own bosses in a, in a multifaceted role from what you've described? Um, well, it's, it's a real mixture. Um, I worked for two main training providers where I deliver um, public courses. And of co- on those courses, I'll have every shape and size of employers, both private, public and voluntary sector. This week, I've been teaching expenses and benefits two days running in different parts of the country. And I've also been teaching a compliance update. So um, that's sort of a, a typical week, three days of um, potentially teaching, as well as the, the public courses that I deliver. I have lots of private clients as well that I go to see um, once or twice a year and do compliance work for them specifically with their own payroll and HR teams. And my client base there ranges from all the Oxford and Cambridge colleges where I spend a week with each at the beginning of the year to to other private sector clients and also payroll agents and bureaus and accountancy practices. So when I'm not doing the lecturing, then the other days of the week I'm writing about this. I've got lots of writing clients that I write online material printed material for update textbooks um, that sort of thing and then I try and probably do a day a week on my committee work which is writing responses to government papers meeting with the revenue and other government departments chairing various various committees as well Um, so yeah keeps me out of mischief So that gives you a really interesting and broad perspective around the whole world of, of, of payroll. And you, you touched earlier on about um, your work with, with M&S and this uh, the sort of never being recognized um, for a job well done, but it was a very <laughs> defined role with a beginning, middle and end. Um, given, you know, I don't want to underestimate the, the core task of delivering payroll. We all understand the, the complexity of that. But what additional value do you see in payroll and the kind of data that businesses are are able to get access to and how has that changed over the last five or ten years with the people that you're working with and and the, the sort of broader understanding of the role that pay plays in people's lives well to be honest i i i think the data is 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 there but i think it's much less a key feature than the the need for the team to be recognized as um in remuneration specialists and the fact that they are the ones who will understand what can be delivered and how 
Um, you can deliver all the HR wonderful policies in the world about expenses and benefits, but if you don't deliver them compliantly, you're going to damage the company's reputation. Some of the directors could be going to jail and you will end up with a huge on cost and egg on your face. And sadly, there is not enough um, interaction between teams using the expertise of the the payroll specialists to understand the risks of um, new policies um, and the best way to deliver them that delivers the outcome that's right for the company and for the employees I mean, salary sacrifice is a classic case where people just assume you can change things around on a pay slip and everything's wonderful and everybody pays less tax than I you know the amount of employers I go into who have not implemented that correctly because nobody has sought to talk to the people who understand the level of detail. Um, quite often that's also because nobody invests in training for those teams. I had to fight to M&S to um, take a qualification in payroll management and I had to fund most of it myself, whereas other people in the business taking finance and HR qualifications were fully funded by the business. But there isn't that investment. So yes, I absolutely accept we have a huge data repository which we can use and provide to the business. But what is being completely underestimated is our technical knowledge about the law and the right way to do things. There is still a huge assumption that all we do is data input. And I see, and I saw it yesterday on my course, somebody who's running a very significant payroll for 600 people. She's the only person and she comes from a marketing background and nobody's ever trained her. So for the first time, she's starting to be allowed to come on a training course. Massive risk to the business, having one person running a 600 payroll for lots of different entities with no cover whatsoever and no, and no, no technical background and no support within the business. That's just you know, a car crash waiting to happen and the, the business are very lucky to have her as long as she stays healthy and doesn't resign. And, and, I mean, why do you think that, that blind spot around um, payroll persists that the broader organisation doesn't see those risks that are so obvious to, to, to you and, and obviously to the audience listening as you describe them, you can, you can almost feel the risk of, of, of the dependency on that one person? I think it's partly to do with um, those of us um, in the senior positions. We've just got to keep on um, shouting about the fact that this is not a job that it was in the 1950s when we were payroll clerks who were counting out pennies into little brown envelopes and it was all about just about getting the tax and NI right. It has moved on drastically and just in the same way as nobody would think a finance professional, um, you know, just presses a button and the VAT and the corporation tax computation is correct. We've got to get senior leaders to understand that this is a finance discipline that has to have very well-trained and resourced teams in it in the same way as any other finance discipline. And we've got to get the senior leaders to value that. Uh, and that is a huge challenge because it, there is no perception that it's difficult uh, and uh, yeah, we're very lucky to have very good software products that assist us, but software products are only as good as the understanding of the legislation that defines them in the first place, of course, but also that the users who understand how to use them properly so they get a compliant outcome. But it's absolutely about getting senior people to value that um, payroll is not just pay as you earn, for example, um, for the revenue. Um, are of course understandably people focused on PAYE 
with some understanding of national insurance, um, but not enough. Um, but that's nothing to do with payroll because our responsibilities are in orders of magnitude bigger than just doing tax and NI. Um, but nobody seems to be able to get senior leaders to understand that until something goes horribly wrong and then everybody's rushing around to throw blame and resource at things which should never have been allowed to happen in the first place. Kate, with um, what's happening with the, like, the political environment at the moment, and there's quite a few changes um, ahead of us, and I, I just wondered, what, how do you feel about that? Is, it, is everything set in stone for next year, or is there still a lot of uncertainty with uh, things like IR35 and um, other aspects of me that need to be changed next year? Um, from my perception, this is actually one of the worst periods um, in my career in terms of um, where we see ourselves. Um, this couldn't have, this election couldn't have happened at a worse time. Um, this would be the time of the year when we should have had a budget on the 6th of November. Uh, we would have then met with HMRC as the BCS a couple of weeks later. We would be firming up all of our um, specifications and requirements for next April with certainty about what was in the Finance Act because the Finance Act would be heading towards Royal Assent and everything has fallen apart. Um, the Finance Bill has obviously fallen along with all the other pending legislation We've got some legislation for next April where we have the primary legislation like statutory bereavement pay, but we don't have the underpinning regulations. With IR35, we did have primary legislation which has fallen. We never had any underpinning regulations published at all on that. So it's a terrible place for the software developers to be when they have absolutely no certainty. And when we look at the timetable here, um, we potentially won't, well, we won't get a budget until after Christmas. And we then need a finance act to follow that. Then we need a Scottish and a Welsh budget to follow our budgets. You can't see that we'll see any certainty until the middle or end of February, which is four weeks before the start of the tax year. So how anybody can expect the software developers to turn on a sixpence and, they're in, and the employer too, to be able to deliver all this newness with no certainty is um, a, 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 just an inestimable challenge, I'm afraid, as we face uh, into this Christmas. And the next uh, sort of six weeks, eight weeks, are going to bring a lot of, 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 of critical change. And you know that's the UK only, and, and obviously from Mel's perspective around the Global Payroll Association, um, we're seeing similar levels of, of change and, and uncertainty and increasing regulation right across the world, in effect, when you look at the, uh, the global payroll landscape. So help me if you could just talk a little bit about how you see the payroll industry as a whole evolving to, to meet those challenges, because what you've described in the UK is happening in, in other markets. Um, and really interested in your perspective on how the payroll profession should respond and how it is responding to those uncertainties and changes you mean from a uk perspective because obviously that that's so i i'm not i don't have any knowledge of what's happening in other jurisdictions i'm afraid so no, my, client, I, my client base is, you know, has has an, a, a lot on its plate in terms of, of the uk um those of them who have obviously got other jurisdictions to manage i can only wonder at how um, they're moving forward but I, I guess it, it comes back to the same things, whether you've got four jurisdictions or 40 jurisdictions, you've got to have um, firstly good software to support you in all those jurisdictions and very good partners who understand the landscape and are feeding into you so that you can get those messages um, up the line to the senior folk who are going to make the strategic decisions. And that I'm afraid is often where we, we fall over that the, 
the, because the payroll team doesn't have a seat at the table in the strong enough terms between the HR and finance senior leaders, whilst they may know what's going on, there often isn't until too late on any understanding of what that means for fundamental business decisions that are potentially perhaps above the pay grade of those who know the technical stuff. I mean, IR35 in the UK is a classic case. Um, we can easily deliver it through software, but it's a very much a cultural strategic decision about where we go to with contractors and consultants. And the best one in the world, the payroll team can't influence all of those if you can't get senior sponsors to buy into the fact that you've got significant change. I think at the very largest businesses, the senior accounting officer regime has helped to focus leaders who might end up in jail if they sign off um, tax policies that are not compliant. But once you get below the, the mega corporation, yeah, you still haven't got that understanding of the risks that you take if you don't spend some of your time thinking about how you're managing the biggest arguably controllable cost in the business, which is the salary bill. If you're not focused on that until it goes wrong, um, that could take your business under. Um, there's no, no question of that. And we've seen that we, you know, even with back in the news this week with the Rangers case where the business went under because of remuneration policies that uh, were not understood and not compliant until it was too late to save the business. So I think that's a really interesting point because obviously I understand that you focus on the UK, but as you say, for whether it's four jurisdictions or 40 jurisdictions, typically the, the payroll profession being such a complex operation consumes all the time that, that the, the team has available. So it sounds like particularly at this point in time, organizations need to be finding space in the diary for broader stakeholder engagement. So whether that's whether they report through the HR function or through the finance function, um, teams need to be making the time and space to have some of those conversations. And it sounds like it would need to be driven by the, the payroll organization because the business itself still has this blind spot around how payroll fits to some of those challenges and problems. So how would you recommend payroll professionals go around go about opening those conversations and starting those conversations? How have you and, and your clients been successful in tackling some of these bigger issues and almost creating the space to step back from the, the detail of running the payroll to make space for that strategic conversation? Well, if you're going to free up time to do this correctly, first of all, don't buy software and drive it in first gear. I meet far too many organisations who've got really good quality payroll and HR software and still doing loads of manual things because they like to check everything or it's always been done that way. If you're in a payroll management position, you shouldn't be doing any of the heavy lifting. That isn't what you're there for. You're there to be doing the strategic um, networking whether that's within your own organization or I don't see enough frankly of people getting out and networking with their peers whether that's in the same sector or just within the profession generally um, I'm involved in an initiative to try and get uh, an association or a forum going for payroll agents where I think we've got a real issue with people being isolated within accountancy practices, particularly where there is seen as a loss leader offering the payroll service compared to the, the sexier things, if you can call them that, like corporation tax, VAT and tax returns. But that loss leader um, actually brings in a huge amount of revenue to those particular um, businesses. 
and yet there's there's no um, no focus on supporting um, the particularly the payroll agent sector. So giving those people an opportunity to to get together and learn best practice from each other, and even simple things. So we uh, I was at a meeting, an inaugural meeting of trying to kick off something like this. Looking at even the pricing strategy is vastly different across. Um, that that particular outsource market and when I, I meet on a daily basis employers in a training context very many of them are coming to training with me because they've had a very bad experience with an outsource relationship where they weren't getting the service or the technical expertise they thought they were getting and have ended up with just as much risk um, just as much of their own resource in checking and supplying data and wondering why they actually ever outsourced in the first place. So we, we've got to do more to give that payroll agent sector a voice and a network so that actually people don't, that's a first port of call, that, that outsourcing is the right thing to do for a certain size of business. And for those who are running in-house payroll, they've also got to look up from their own desks, not just to their leaders within their own organization, but what can they learn from people who have been successful in, in challenging and moving that into a separate directorship in big businesses? Because there are people out there who've managed to establish payroll as its own directorship with dotted reporting to both HR and finance, which is where it sits between the two. And that's a model that others need to learn from and free up time from doing that heavy lifting, as attractive as it might be, because that's what they've always done. That's not what the leadership role requires today in the 2019. Yes. Yeah, uh, that's fascinating how that split reporting line between HR and finance creates some of these these challenges. Um, I want to switch gears for a second, if we can. You talked about your your early career and your experience of coming into payroll from HR, um, and and you made a very interesting comment about um, working mums. And and we're talking to a number of uh, female leaders in in payroll um, and in in the broader industry as part of this podcast series. And um, I was interested to understand perhaps a couple of your defining experiences through your career as a strong female leader in the industry? And as you look back, what sort of shaped your approach and your perspective? Um, I, I, I suppose that the direction my career has taken has been very much shaped by, by being a mum as well. Um, I was an older mum because I was in my 30s before I um, had children, predominantly because living in London, we couldn't afford to have children before that. And I was fortunate that um, when I had my children at MS and I was at that point an established member of the payroll management team, I was allowed to become part-time. Um, that was quite an interesting development for the business because there had never been anybody part-time in the payroll management team before. In fact, there had been nobody in the HR function who'd been given a two-day-a-week contract and uh, I'll never forget being made to feel um, rather um, superfluous, shall we say, by being told the only reason I've been given two days a week is that I was rounded down to zero because there's 0.4 FTE. I didn't exist on the headcount. Oh, wow. Um, so that is uh, an interesting indication of something that the government are trying to tackle at the moment is that uh, you can get more pregnancy discrimination when you actually come back to work than you get while you're on maternity leave. I'd like to think a lot of things that happened to me as a new mum wouldn't happen now. 
because um, my children are 22 and 24 now. So we're talking a long time ago. But the reason for me to um, want to be part time was to support them. And that was also the reason that I became um, self-employed is that uh, no longer was it sensible for me to spend all of my time in London shouting at HMRC when I wasn't seeing my children grow up. So it was a big decision to take the plunge and become um, self-employed, and particularly at the same time as my husband fairly soon after lost his job and was made redundant from M&S. Um, but for us, it was the right thing to do to balance um, my responsibilities as a mum with my own um, you know, hope that I could make a go of being self-employed and as they got older, maybe that would expand into something a bit bigger. I don't think I ever quite imagined I'd be working seven days a week um, once they had uh, departed, but it has grown quite exponentially over the last sort of 15 years. And I've been very, very fortunate that I've had... Um, opportunities to do different things um partly which of course have been driven by what has happened in the compliance space so when i could see that pensions were suddenly going to become part of what our day-to-day -day job was in payroll it gave me the opportunity to become a member of the pensions management institute and start to get to know a lot of folk in the pensions arena because that was an area of knowledge that didn't exist for us as professionals for myself mns i we had a non-contributory pension scheme i'd never had to worry about um pensions even at a very large company so as compliance things have come along they've provided opportunities which is quite ironic now because here i am at the end of my career teaching people about ir35 which might well be something that causes me to retire next year if uh, if people decide that uh, my assignments are caught by the new rules so it's come kind of full circle that teaching legislation you in the end teach legislation that might be uh, mean that uh, that's uh, you just uh, disappearing out of out of the, uh, the the scene altogether okay one of the um things that i hear a lot from people is that they're considering to become self-employed to leave uh -huh. a permanent role obviously that brings certain challenges as, as we all know what what was what were some of the biggest challenges that you came across when you left permanent employee employment to then uh -huh. become a consultant well one of the first um things is the loneliness but in some respects i had already crossed that barrier because when i started my two day a week contract with m and um, very soon after that we relocated um, to the Midlands so I started working permanently from home so you have to then suddenly be very self-sufficient you haven't got any colleagues at all um, you've nobody to bounce ideas off and you also have like no IT department you have nobody to support you when things go wrong that are not professional things but are, are things where you've picked the phone up and said oh the photocopy is broken or I, I can't print this or whatever um, so you know that self-sufficiency um, is quite a big deal and some people just don't adapt to it even from a personality point of view and um, so for me I'm quite lucky to have the mixture of being out and about three or four days a week meeting people but also having a home um, base people will not um, perhaps think that self-employment means you'll work way more hours than you ever did as an employee and I know I'm preaching to the converted telling you that Mel because um, I work much more many more hours I thought I worked very hard as an employee but when it's your own business 
and you've got client demands plus running the business itself, which needs doing, it's a, a very significant um, upscaling of, of what you're expected um, to do. So you've got to love it. You don't go into it just thinking you're going to have loads of holiday and you'll do a couple of days a week and, and earn enough money that you don't need to do anything for the rest of the month. It's hard graft. And the temptation, of course, is to do contracts perhaps with with one particular client but you're not looking ahead to what happens when that contract finishes and that's always the risk of being self-employed you've got to keep all the balls in the air constantly um, to have the pipeline of work coming through as well plus doing all your own self-development so that the main thing for me is to have a really good network of people I can talk to other technical experts people doing the same sort of thing as me where we can bounce ideas off by email and chat to each other and catch up over a coffee and talk about you know, legislation and developments because you, you're very isolated otherwise and you'll soon get out of touch technically if you don't have that sort of support network. And as you look back on the earlier stage of your career where you were a, an employee, um, who was the best leader that you worked with or um, was it easy to find role models inside your function and your organization who helped with your career development? Or was that something that you had to drive yourself at that time as well? You, you talked about obviously driving that now inside a network, um, but interested in, in terms of how you started in, in your career and, and built your, your capabilities. Yeah, I think there were some fundamental um, senior folk once I went into the payroll function that, that um, you know, I learned an awful lot from and also were, were strong supporters of, of me, people who suggested that I take a payroll qualification for the first time, which was, you know, rad- radical for MS because they only believed really in in-house training and they were very insular in terms of not thinking there was any value in external qualifications other than, say, for finance and um, dedicated HR professionals. So for somebody in payroll to indicate that, um, you know, you could take a payroll management diploma. That was that was uh, quite a step forward in the professionalism of the function. Um, and yes, I learned a lot from um, one of the things about MS. It's a very political organisation, uh, and hierarchy and status are something that you're very mindful of. It was kind of modelled on the civil service um, in that respect. So I learned an awful lot about. Um, politics and who you have to um, lobby to get things done and picking your battles um, so that you win some and you lose some so yeah there have been some there have been some strong female role models that I've seen uh, along the way and there's also been people who I thought well I'm never going to end up like that because um, you'll also meet um, female leaders with um, tactics and drive that are not your own Um, and I also was always very strongly a mum as well as a payroll professional and there were some things that you know I wasn't prepared to do because I wasn't going to sacrifice um, that side of my life which and I could easily have said yes I'll I'll move to Manchester when the team was set up but that wasn't the right choice for my family or for many of those I worked with. So um, I didn't. I think the best advice I ever had from somebody when I was first moving into head office, which I think stands a lot of people in good stead, is never, ever underestimate what somebody might be able to do for you in the future. So always talk to everybody you have an opportunity to meet 
and be polite to them because you never know when you might come back and need to work with them in the future. So always use your contacts and always say thank you for any support you get because it will repay in dividends when you actually need that person to help you with a tricky situation or open a door for you uh, with, with somebody else. That's great advice. And, and do you actually have two or three other tips that, that you would offer to people who are coming through the, the profession at, at this point? Um, well, more than anything, what you've just said, it's a profession. I'm doing um, some work at the moment with our local um, county council where there is a, a shared service function that supports 140 PAYE schemes across the East Midlands where in the public sector they've set up a shared service centre based out of our county council and I'm helping with the apprentices um, a little bit there. And I went to see them a couple of weeks ago, and that is the future. We have got to get people seeing this as a career, joining organisations and taking a payroll apprenticeship, not taking a business admin apprenticeship, as I met somebody else last week doing. There is a dedicated payroll apprenticeship that I've been involved in um, creating um, with Ian Holloway and uh, another contact of Mel's who's been fundamental in pulling this together. So we've done this outside any of the um, rep bodies in the profession because we see that that is the future. Getting people in post-school, not post-university necessarily, and sticking with that profession and seeing that it's got as many opportunities as any finance or HR um, discipline. So stick with it. We need those youngsters. Um, and I'm really proud to see some really bright youngsters coming up, you know, behind me that will be the future and will make a big difference to this profession in terms of getting its professional recognition that it that it needs. And at the industry conferences and in the industry media, there's a lot of talk about automation and machine learning and artificial intelligence. So how do you see the industry developing over the next five or six years and how are you and, and the apprentice program and some of the other initiatives that you've talked about helping prepare individuals and teams for uh, whatever that future may bring? Well I suppose I'm a bit of a dinosaur in that respect um, because I still think that machines are not going to replace the technical knowledge um, and the understanding of what um, needs to come out of a machine depends on the knowledge of the person that's inputting it in the first place so that I, I feel we can slightly overstate how much you can um, let the the robots take over in our world I don't doubt there are um, absolutely jobs that can be improved from an efficiency perspective but we're never going to get away from yeah, the knowledge that is in humans and the interaction of different pieces of that knowledge together to deliver a service for our employees. And one of the other massive challenges that we have is any automation that we want to deliver has got to sit in the context of other industries wanting to come to the party as well. And one of the big challenges that I've been involved in in the last year is trying to get some of the pensions industry to actually move into the 20th century, let alone the 21st century, because some of the technology that's out there is so antiquated and we simply cannot get automation between our payroll systems and a lot of the older established um, life companies, for example, in the pensions industry. 
And that is really holding back improving efficiency in payroll departments where you have got hugely clunky um, interface routines that have to happen to get data from one system to another. That absolutely shouldn't be happening, but we can't get that appetite to, to move forward. It's almost as if, well, if you want to do business with us as a, a big pension provider, take it or leave it. And sadly, we, we've got to get past that because we will need to leave it if that's the attitude we have. And that's not going to be good when we've got you know great investment opportunities for our employees' workplace pensions. But we can only um, really exploit those if we can um, make that technology work better between our two industries. We're still in it infancy. Yes, 2012 is not that long ago since we began auto-enrolment, but we've got such a long way to go to improve technology between those two industries. So what's next for you? Um, you know, there's a, a very impressive set of achievements and, 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 and some really interesting initiatives that you're working on right across the, the profession. So what's, what's the big challenge that you're still working on and, and you're almost, what are you working for at this point? <laughs> um, well, the, the big challenge is um, what will happen with IR35 because being a personal service company myself, um, I have no idea what um, the next year holds. As a, a trainer and consultant, um, I sh- my status shouldn't be challenged at all, but it won't be my choice any longer. It will be the choice of my clients, so whether they take a risk-averse um, view of using consultants any longer. So that's very interesting, coupled with the fact that I have a husband who's retiring at the end of January anyway. So uh, do I carry on um, or not? Uh, or will that be decided for me, as I say? Um If I get the opportunity to carry on just for a few more years, for me, it's about what I can um, do to secure the the future for those that are coming up behind to get um, more understanding of what we have tried to deliver since 2013 when real-time information um, was thrust upon us and then auto-enrolment as well, starting in 2012. Those two initiatives really at the end of my career have made a very big difference to our profession. And I'm afraid still um, RTI does not or has not offered anything like the jammed today or tomorrow that we thought it was going to offer. And as we now roll out universal credit to millions of people, I'm very scared about what will happen with the standard of some of that earnings data in central government systems that's now going to influence whether people can put food on the table. So anything that I can do post um, a KTAP Craft Consultancy Limited existing, which may not be long now, I think I should turn my attention to try and supporting through voluntary work like the Low Income Tax Reform Group and Tax Aid and some of the charities that help people who are navigating the tax system. I'd like to become a volunteer for them as some of my other friends and colleagues have after retirement because a lot of people don't know how to get from here to there within the complex tax system and I don't know much about it but the bit I do know perhaps I can help some other people to get where they need to be. I can't actually imagine the payroll industry without you being there, Kate, to be honest. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there are lots and lots of people who will be very glad to see the back of me. <laughs> well, they'll probably be celebrating that IR35 is coming along if that provides an opportunity for that to be the case. No, but I, I know there's a, a lot of companies that have just 
sort of scrap the whole consultancy thing i think there's Indeed. been a few in, in the press so so hopefully you know maybe it'd be like the um was it the two 2k thing yes all a bit overblown maybe it, yeah then it'd be all okay <laughs> you never know um so i think we've probably got time for one last question curious as you look back what would you change if you could you know what would you say to your younger self or would you would you not change anything Oh, gosh. Um, yes, I would. I think what I'd say to my younger self wanted to be a filing clerk because I am incredibly shy and I wanted a job where I wouldn't have to speak to anybody all day long and I could be in a little room keeping things nice and tidy. Um, to ever have thought to my younger self, I'd end up running a business where public speaking is pretty much what I do 60 plus percent of the time and sharing committees and things would have been laughable. So what I always say to my two girls is, you know, it's not where you start, it's where you finish and don't underestimate what you can achieve. You know, that there are opportunities out there and you've got so many more skills perhaps than you ever think at the outset. Um, so just believe in yourself. I'd have said to that 12 year old Katie wanted to be a filing clerk shyness doesn't need to hold you back you can master some of this stuff and uh, and come out the other side and find it's actually quite enjoyable (laughs) what a fabulous note to finish on this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation and i really appreciate you you joining us and 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 mel to the gpa for giving us the chance to share this with the the wider audience you're very welcome thanks for asking me thank you kate okay bye-bye bye This podcast is made possible by ADP Global Payroll, giving you the confidence and transparency to transform global payroll into an engine for growth. Begin your journey at adp.com forward slash worldwide and connect with your local global expert.